Our scripture reading today is from John 3, 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. When the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not conceive our testimony or receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Dear Father, we are thankful for your patience with us um, when we come asking you questions, when we come asking you the wrong questions, uh, when we don't understand what you say, you bear with us. Uh, you keep speaking and encouraging us. Father, I pray that uh, we would hear the words of Jesus to Nicodemus this morning, that unless one is born again, um, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We will not even see it. Um, help us to remember that, um, even as we can't control it. Uh, Father, I pray that the Spirit would blow through this place today, um, that uh, the wind of your word, of your truth, of your grace, of your kindness, of your power uh, would blow through here this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. A few weeks ago, uh, there was a Jeopardy contestant named Brian Hinegar, and he announced on Twitter, so he won a lot of money, won like $68,000 um, on, on Jeopardy, which is great, but then um, he had a little difficulty, and on Twitter later, he announced that he was taking a break from social media and shaving his 10-year-old mustache because of all the unkind people online who had compared him to Hitler uh, because of the way his mustache looked. And um, it was a sad uh, state. He said that the experience ruined all his faith in humanity. And it's, it's really kind of, I know it's such a funny, uh, a funny statement. Uh, Hitler uh, ruined a lot of things, didn't he? Like, you kind of like wonder, like there's all these sorts of things that you cannot do because of Hitler. 
Um, how many of us might be rocking toothbrush mustaches? I actually learned like that's what they're called is toothbrush mustaches. Um, were it not for him being just the worst person uh, in the 20th century. Um, the swastika uh, is in other cultures like a symbol for flourishing. And so you can imagine people like with like back tattoos and saying like in Sanskrit it means peace you know and so but like no more like we cannot use uh, that anymore it is forever gone from our uh, history uh, names in particular have power and so next year in all of San Francisco I am a hundred percent sure that no Adolphs will be born like not a single one will be here uh, there probably will be no Judases. Um, Judas is a nice sounding name, um, but because of Judas, like, there's not going to be a Judas. I, I've never met a Judas. I actually did meet a guy a few years back when I lived in Louisville whose name was Cain. And when I like paused, he said, like the first murderer. Like he like, he just decided to just like embrace it. <laughs> that it, my parents named me Cain. And so I'm just gonna use that as my explainer. Um, another name that has lost its luster is evangelical, right? Uh, after COVID, after George Floyd, after January 6th, uh, where people had banners of cross and called themselves evangelical, the term has been rendered almost unusable in a lot of ways, right? And it's not because I'm afraid to be associated with difficult theological positions, um, difficult ethical positions, but because what people think evangelical means often doesn't in truth describe what I believe or who I am. In San Francisco in particular, it's definitely unhelpful. So if someone were to ask me uh, when I shared that I was a Christian, if I would consider myself an evangelical, my response would be that depends on what you mean, probably not. Um, evangelical is really no longer a religious description, it's more a political statement um, and a very specific one, right? But it then in that circumstance, it's hard for me uh, to know what else to say that would be helpful to people. And so you like sort of try different things out. Um, so I've used words like Orthodox Christian, classic Christian, traditional Protestant, just simply Christian, follower of Jesus. Like there's all kinds of ways that you're trying to sort of feel out what would be. And, and it's not, again, about putting your best face forward or like hiding. It's just like, what is the best way to communicate who I am um, and uh, what I believe? This change of names is unfortunate uh, to me because evangelical is, in theory, a great descriptor. Like, it's a great name. Uh, it's simply an English adaptation of the Greek word euangelion. So we've just sort of anglicized it. And that simply means good news, gospel. And so to be an evangelical was originally uh, someone who was less concerned about second order disagreements uh, between church traditions, so between being Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or whatever. Um, as an evangelical, those things weren't unimportant, uh, but one wanted to be chiefly identified by the evangel. Like that's what I wanted to center my life on, right? With the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as revealed in scripture. Uh, historically, evangelicals have been marked by four commitments. Um, these were first articulated by a historian. Um, it's called the Bebbington Quadrilateral, um, which is a dumb name, but it like stuck in my head because I could remember it this week and Google it. Um, they are, so the four things are biblicism. So evangelicals have a high regard for the Bible, they used to, uh, with a commitment to read it, to study it, to teach it, uh, to translate it and share it widely. 
evangelicals are crucicentric crucicentrism, and so that is a focus on the atoning work of Christ, that the center of the gospel is Jesus' death on our behalf. Uh, Conversionism is the third thing, so believing that human beings need to be converted with an experience on a personal relationship with Christ, a personal experience of Jesus, and so it's not something that you are simply born into, it is something that you are converted um, from being lost to being saved. And then activism, the conviction that true faith is going to be expressed in effort, that we are to do things. Um, Sadly, I I feel like if you think about what it means to be an evangelical today, the only thing we really have left is activism, Um, that there's like action and certain things that you do, but activism without the Bible, the cross, and uh, saving grace, uh, repentance, and faith is not evangelical, right? It's not even Christian. Um, anymore. It's just sort of a political statement. Now, I am not advocating that we recover the term evangelical. Like, again, I just want to communicate accurately. That's not what the spiel is about. But I do think these four commitments are good qualities. Um, They're good commitments, which I hope remain true of me and true of our church. And the reason they're good is because they reflect the ministry and message of Jesus. You can find all of these things um, in Jesus's ministry. Already in John, we have witnessed Christ's commitment to the Bible, uh, to the Hebrew scriptures, to the cross, to conversion, and to loving action. And all four of them are here in John 3. We can see them here. So John chapter 3 begins in the context of Jesus's activism. You could call it that, right? John 3, 1 through 2, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And so the reason Nicodemus is coming to Jesus is because of all of his miraculous signs, many more than are recorded in the book of John, right? Jesus' ministry was marked by good works. He worked for the sake of others. Jesus didn't just teach about a future kingdom. He brought that kingdom here to us. He displayed it when he healed the blind, when he caused the lame to walk again. He healed the leper. He cast out demons, He did the works of the kingdom in fulfillment of his own prayer to let thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And he was an expression of that. Uh, This activism was shaped by Jesus' understanding of scripture, his commitment to the Bible, his biblicism. Isaiah 61 predicts the ministry of the Messiah as a ministry of good news and good works. Uh, Verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Already in John, Jesus has been critical of Jewish purification rituals, even Jewish sacrifices. Um, Those are not what the Lord wants from us. Micah 6, what does the Lord require of us? Uh, with, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And so we have already seen this on display in the ministry of Christ. 
uh, we have seen Jesus committed to good works, that this is the sacrifice that we are to pay um, to the Lord. This is the life that we're to live. This is why Christians historically have been activists. They have never uh, been, well, faithful Christians have never sort of just circled the wagons and just kept to themselves, just waiting for the kingdom to come. They've had an, an, a mark on the empires that they've been a part of as little kingdom outposts. And so very early on, right, early Christians, what did they do? They opened orphanages. They started hospitals, free hospitals in the Roman Empire. They started monasteries, universities, things that they were doing in faith that would have an influence that would shape the culture around them in fulfillment of God's command to love others, both neighbors and enemies alike. These are expressions of faith in action. They are our own signs, encouraging our neighbors to believe in Jesus. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, encourages the church in James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, in these two ways, Jesus' visitor, Nicodemus, would have heartily agreed with Jesus' passion for good works and his passion for the Bible. Uh, he was a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, who had given his entire life to strict obedience, both his own and encouraging it among others. He, he was hopeful to reform and change the culture around him in line with Scripture. And that is why Jesus' first words to him must have took him back, uh, took him aback. Um, John 3, 3, Jesus cuts through Nicodemus' praise, his niceties. He answers Nicodemus and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus doesn't get it. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? But Jesus double downs, doubles down, answering, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, we should show Nicodemus some sympathy, so some of us might be more familiar with the language of being born again. It's a, a more common Christian expression in certain like church communities in America. Um, Nicodemus, though, is the first person in history to really hear the phrase, and so let's have some sympathy that he is kind of confused, and, and we would be too. But that's not the only reason Nicodemus is confused by this statement. Because he didn't come to Jesus asking how he could enter the kingdom of God. That's not why he came to him. We don't get to hear what Nicodemus came to talk about, but you can be sure that that wasn't it. He was a Pharisee. The word literally means separated ones. He had given his entire life to religious devotion. If anyone deserved a ticket into the kingdom of God, it was Nicodemus. He wasn't concerned about that. But Jesus cuts him off. He speaks earnestly to him. Unless you are born again, truly, truly, unless you are born again, Nicodemus, you will not enter the kingdom of God. I know you want to go there. I know you want to see it. I know it's your whole life is aimed at that. And unless you are born again, it will not happen. You won't even get to see it. When we approach Jesus with flattery, don't be surprised when he cuts us off in love. There is nothing more loving Jesus could have said to Nicodemus in this moment. And we learn uh, graciously later that Nicodemus becomes a Christian, not at this moment, not in this conversation, but by the end of Jesus' life, he's a follower of Christ. And it starts here. 
when Jesus is frank with Nicodemus, your obedience is not enough. Your knowledge of the Bible is not enough. Your high position in your religious community, your respectability, that is not enough. Even your respect for me as he's so kind as he approaches Jesus, calling him teacher, telling Jesus that he's from God, that's not enough either. Jesus has already said similar things through his signs in chapter 2. Purification rituals are not enough. That's why he retired the purification jars. He set them aside. Bringing sacrifices that are not enough. And that's why he drove the animals out from the temple and said, I'm going to tear this temple down and rebuild it in three days. Even Jesus' own miracles are not enough. They're just signs. They do not forever change people. His own activism isn't enough. Being a disciple isn't enough. The world's problems are so much bigger. Our problems are so much bigger than any of these well-meaning efforts can fix. Unless one is made new, unless one is born again, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he will not see the kingdom of God. He will not enter it. Jesus is here alluding to God's promise in Ezekiel 36 of the New Covenant. Uh, After centuries of trying to make Israel faithful by complying with the law, God has cast them out. He's exiled them to be slaves in Babylon, but he isn't done with them yet. He promises in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Bible's conviction is that humanity's problems run so deep that we need to be completely remade to be given an entirely new heart, entirely new spirit, a new nature. Personal regeneration is what is required to enter God's kingdom. Nothing less will do. Paul will later write in Ephesians 2 about life before Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The belief of the Christian is that apart from Christ, I am dead in my trespasses. I need to be made alive. I need to be born again. The Bible is very pessimistic about human nature. I thought it was funny, um, sad funny, uh, how the Jeopardy contestants' experience made him lose all faith in humanity. (laughs) Um, Jesus agrees. Uh, Right before our passage, it sort of sets up Uh, John 3, John 2, sort of what's like bridge passage. It's uh, John 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in Jesus' name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, 
because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And so you can see how the, the, those two verses sort of set us up to see Nicodemus rightly. Um, he knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. These verses bridge the story. It doesn't matter that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was still a man. It doesn't matter that he was well-meaning. He was still a man. And John warns us to be wary of people who believe in Christ simply because of his signs, and really to be wary of ourselves who believe in Jesus simply because of signs. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And so in this way, John is teaching us to side-eye Nicodemus. He's one of the people that Jesus doesn't trust. And not, again, not because he's out to trick Jesus. So he's not the villain that we see um, depicted in the, in the Pharisee community broadly. He's open-minded. He's interested. He's compelled by Christ. But he is still one of the people that Jesus doesn't trust. Nicodemus doesn't know his own heart like Jesus knows Nicodemus's heart. It says that he knows all men. He knows us. We don't know our own heart like Jesus knows our own heart. Uh, Jesus side-eyes us like he side-eyes Nicodemus. And if we're honest, we all know he should, right? My heart is always suspect. Um, on a run yesterday, I listened to Kendrick Lamar's latest album, Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers, um, I like Kendrick Lamar and, and like all his albums, it's definitely the hardest and most painful to listen to. It's really rough. Um, the big steppers in the title are these step dancers that you hear throughout the album, um, just sort of intermittent. Um, but it's just a tough listen. It's not as fun as his previous albums. Um, I think it starts with, uh, I've been going through something is the, is the opening line of the whole album. Um, I've been going through something. The most brutal song is almost unbearable. It's a, a recording of, of two lovers uh, fighting and just the height of ugliness. I mean, you just like can't even imagine being in a relationship as like violent and terrible as this. Um, and I mean, I'm curious people who listen, like how many of us like just skip the song? Like, you just can't, you're just like, oh, and I'm going to skip it. I'm not going to listen to it. Um, when I make myself listen to it, I often cry because it's just so awful. What, and you sort of listen. I remember first, like, hearing it and be like, what is the purpose of this song? Like, why would you record this and put it out there? But it opens with, this is what the world sounds like. Before it starts the dramatization, it says, this is what the world sounds like. And then, you, and then you just like weep even more. And then it ends, stop tap dancing around the conversation. Like, be honest. And so that's what is most com compelling to me about this album is, is how brutally honest he is about the way the world is and the way he, he himself is. He is indicting himself throughout the album over and over again. The Bible doesn't tap dance around the conversation of 
humanity's depravity. Jesus doesn't tap dance around it. He interrupts Nicodemus. You must be born again. You need to be completely remade. Human nature needs more than religion. It needs more than morality, more than politics and wealth and technology and therapy and family. Human nature needs replacing. The flesh needs to be replaced with by what is spiritual, what is heavenly. And the grace of God is shown in that God doesn't replace us with different people. He could have done that and just wiped the earth and just started over again. Instead, he sends Jesus to make us into different people, to replace the nature within us. From page three of the Bible, it's clear we need to be saved from ourselves. This is the message of the Bible leading up to the sending of God's son, which is why Jesus is critical of Nicodemus' confusion. He claims to be a teacher of the people of God. Nicodemus said to him, verse 9, how can these things be? And Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The we here is Jesus and the prophets. Jesus is speaking in line with the messengers of God. And if you don't believe what we are saying, how can I say anything new? Nicodemus was coming to Jesus for something new. But Jesus points out that he had yet to understand what was old. He points him back. And that's often our experience of Christ. We come to him, I come to him because my life isn't working, asking him to give me some new insight, but that's not the lesson I'm supposed to learn from my life not working. When life doesn't work, it usually means we need to go backwards to reflect. And the Pharisees claim to love the law of God. But the lesson of the law, as we learned in our catechism today, was meant to convince Nicodemus of his inability to keep the law. Like, that was the lesson that he missed. That was the purpose, to show him. The law was to show him that he needed more than outward purity. He needed an entirely new nature. Romans chapter 7, written by Paul, who was himself a Pharisee, Reflecting on his inability to keep the law, he writes, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I, and how does he know this? Because I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law is meant to be confounded. Obedience is meant to be out of reach because then we realize our predicament. We need a new heart. We need a new nature, which is not something we can do ourselves. And the confusion Paul experienced, the confusion Nicodemus experienced was the point of the law. It was the point that Nicodemus refused to accept. I'm reminded a few chapters back when Andrew and John were wanting to follow Jesus, when they were stalking him, and Jesus turns around and asks, what do you want? And their answer was, where are you staying? I just want to be with you. We don't know what we want. Can I just be with you? Can I stay with you? That is how Nicodemus should have responded. 
it took him years to ultimately follow Jesus. But for him to follow Jesus here, he would have just had to drop everything and said, I'm just going to be with you. But instead of responding in faith to Christ, he tries to understand him. He asks for an explainer. Uh, It reminds me of Anselm, who described the Christian life as faith-seeking understanding, not understanding-seeking faith. We begin with the posture of faith, and we ask the Lord to deepen our understanding. It doesn't work the other way. Understanding does not lead to faith. And so Jesus refuses to explain. John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Can you imagine how frustrating this must have been to Nicodemus? It's frustrating to me, and I have the uh, benefit of, of a complete Bible with God's death and resurrection, but here Nicodemus is just totally baffled. He's used to being the smartest man in the room, and then he comes and he can't, he doesn't get it. And frustration was the point, because Nicodemus was needed to be brought to the end of himself. He was used to a life where morality, goodness, righteousness, though hard, was always within reach. He could always obtain the standards that he set for himself. But then Jesus appears, and Nicodemus realizes, this man's righteousness is out of reach for me. It's beyond me. How can I reach his level? And the answer is, you can't. You need to, but you can't. It is entirely a work of God. John has already said as much in chapter 1. He came to his own, and Jesus' own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Nicodemus wanted to be born through blood, through his heritage, through his pedigree, the fact that he was Jewish. He wanted to be born through the will of the flesh because he desired God's word and to be obedient. He wanted to be born born again through the will of man, just through uh, grit and power. But his blood heritage doesn't matter. His commitment and desire doesn't matter. Only God's will gives him the right to become a child of God. Does God's law bring you to the end of yourself? Does Jesus' teaching and his example bring you to the end of yourself? Do you feel confused? Do you feel frustrated? In part, that is the point. That is the place that God wants us to be and to stay at, to where we know that the only hope we have is Christ, that there's not any element of me being able to figure it out. If I could just ask Jesus the right questions, if I could just sort of parse and Um, determine what it's true. What do you mean, be born again? I can't, I don't get it. I'm just going to stay close to Christ. Do you feel the need for conversion? Do you feel the need to be born again, to be completely remade? Jesus and the gospel relieves us of shame in two ways. 
and both are very, very important. So first, some shame that we are relieved from in the gospel is misplaced shame, a shame that we should not feel. Uh, Jesus relieves us. There are so many things that we expect of ourselves that are not expectations of the Lord, right? We're like standards that we put on ourselves and we feel shame for not meeting these other standards when God has not asked us to do those things. Uh, many of us live with standards that are not just hard, they're impossible, like completely impossible. Our standards for ourselves are inhumane. We take standards we've been raised with or been instructed in, things we've read online, and we just like combine them all into some sort of Frankenstein figure of what it means to be the best person, the best thinker, the best employee, the best parent, the best spouse, the best in finances. And we have all these top 10 lists and we put them all together and it's completely impossible to do it. And the gospel relieves us of that and says, you know what? The law of the Lord is simple. Love God and love your neighbor. That's it. Be faithful. That's it. The good news of Jesus gives us a lighter yoke. It relieves us of the pressure to bow down to other idols. We only need serve God. But that is not the enough because there is another shame. There's misplaced shame. There's wrong shame. But then there's also true shame, real shame, because I can't live. I can't love God perfectly right? I can't love others well. God requires holiness, purity, righteousness. So even if I just serve him, even when I boil down the commandments to love God and others, I still fall short. I fall damnably short. No matter how simple you make it, righteousness is still out of reach for me. I need forgiveness. I need to be washed clean and given new life. I need a life that is centered on grace and not works. I need Ezekiel 36 to be washed clean, to be given a new heart where a heart of flesh replaces my heart of stone. I need God's spirit to be put within me so that I obey him out of the honest uh, parts of my soul and not as a function, not as an outer performance. This is what is pictured by immersive baptism. When we are dying to sin as we go under the water and we're raised to walk in newness of life. We are picturing our confession that we need to be born again. Salvation requires regeneration and conversion. Paul describes our salvation in Titus chapter 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So if salvation is not by works, what is our part to play in it? If we're Nicodemus, truly desiring to see God's kingdom, to enter God's kingdom, what do we do? If God opens our eyes to our inability to save ourselves, to our need for a new heart, what do we do? Well, Jesus finishes his conversation with Nicodemus, verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
So much religion is about us ascending to God. But no one has ascended into heaven. No one has ascended into heaven. The Son of Man has descended to us. Christianity is about God descending to us, being made like us, and then dying in our place. And here again, we see Jesus' crucicentrism, how his entire ministry is aimed at the cross. At every stage thus far in the Gospel of John, Jesus has pointed ahead to his work on the cross. As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I don't know if you remember this wild story from the wilderness. The Israelites were angry with God, blaming him for their struggles, claiming that God had rescued them from Egypt only to let them die in the wilderness. That's what they thought God was doing. And so, in fulfillment of their fantasies, God sent poisonous serpents uh, to bite the Israelites that they might all die in the wilderness. Um, It's ironic and sad and and difficult, (laughs) difficult story. Uh, But then he told Moses, who cries out for help, to fashion a bronze snake, mount it on a cross and raise it up. And anyone who looked upon the snake for healing, who just looked, would be healed. It's amazing that people refuse to look. Um, There are people who would not look at the snake. But anyone who simply looked at the snake, the bronze serpent, would be healed and survive and live. In the same way, Jesus, the Son of Man, would be raised up. This is not Easter, mind you. Raised up on the cross, glorified on the cross. He would take our sin, take our judgment, judgment which we brought on ourselves, and all who looked upon him in faith for healing, who just look. That's all you have to do. Look to Jesus in faith, and you will be healed, born again, made able to see and enter the kingdom of God. God often calls our bluff. Like the Israelites in the wilderness, he lets the worst thing happen. The thing that we accuse God of doing, he sends the poisonous snake to bite us and bring us near death, but only to remind us again that he loves us, that we really need him, faith in him more than anything else. Snake or no snake, we can't heal ourselves. We can't follow the law. We can't conjure the spirit of God. We cannot ascend to heaven. We need God to descend from heaven to us and to die in our place. The new birth comes when we look to Jesus, dying on the cross for our sins, and simply believe that he forgives us and will save us. Because of Christ, we can ask for forgiveness for sins and help for obedience, and God will save. This is the gospel. Um, Quite frankly, this is the good news that Nicodemus needed to hear, and that so many of us need to hear. All of us need to hear. As we try to save ourselves in all kinds of ways, and Jesus just cuts through, interrupts us, interrupts our prayers, interrupts our desires, and just says, truly, truly, friend, you must be born again. You need to be made new. You cannot save yourself in order to see the kingdom of God, in order to enter the kingdom of God. This is what it means to be centered on the gospel, to be evangelical. 
Now, I don't think it's a term that is ever usable in San Francisco, (laughs) but the core beliefs are still so vital for us as a church, as a mission. Will we be a church that lives out our faith actively, does good works in the name of Christ? We'll be a church that is committed to scripture, reading it, studying it, shaping our life and message by it. But more than that, will we be a church that looks to Jesus' work on the cross as the foundation for our faith? Nothing else will save but faith in Jesus' death. And will we call people and call ourselves to conversion, to being born again? Now, of course, we can talk about that as a a church, but more than that, are we born again? That is the question. That is the question that Nicodemus must have been left with. Baffled, like, if I don't enter the kingdom of God, who will? And through watching Jesus and through ultimately seeing him die and be raised, Nicodemus got the point, and he was born again. He did believe and trust in the Son of Man. He looked to Jesus for forgiveness of sins. And so we're invited to do that, and we're invited to do that freshly if you're already a Christian every day, and to recognize that the work that I want done in my life, the work that I want done in my heart is not a work that I can do. It is only a work that Jesus can do. And so I'm asking him again and again and again to wash me, to cleanse me, to make me new every day, to lead me to the point where I will be in his kingdom. We need a new nature, a new heart, a new spirit. If you have that new nature, be thankful. You did nothing to deserve salvation. I did nothing to deserve salvation. Help us to live in light of it. Will we hear Jesus when he lovingly interrupts us and says, unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God? And will we lovingly interrupt others and say the same? Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for your bold love that even though this passage opens with your deep knowledge of the darkness of our hearts, how you saw people's affection for you, their uh, quick faith, and rather than give up on them, bold and belittle, rather than pressed in, scold and belittle and shame them, and you called him to yourself. Father, you've done that with all of us, even though you see our hearts You see my heart this week and this morning, a preacher of God's word, and yet not fully trustworthy, with mixed motives, uh, with performance ambitions. And you still call me to faith. You still call me to life. You call me to new life, eternal life. Father, would we live by the Spirit, would we live according to our new natures in Christ, and would we patiently call others as well? We love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.